I've been preaching a sermon series on uh, Psalms, and uh, it's been a really great time at City Grace to be looking through Psalms, and um, I preached on Psalm 32 uh, last week, but one of the things um, just recently that God has been uh, impressing on me is the importance of faith, the importance of believing in God and in his promises, and um, there is a passage in Matthew chapter 21 where uh, Jesus is walking along and he sees a fig tree and he's hungry and so he approaches the fig tree to uh, to get some food and uh, the fig tree has no fruit and so Jesus curses the fig tree and he says may you never bear fruit again kind of funny Jesus being very human in that moment and kind of spiteful he so he curses the fig tree and uh, and the fig tree withers right in front of the disciples right before their eyes and they're like wow Jesus you look what you did to that tree and Jesus turns around to them and says, well, you think that that's a big deal. He says, I tell you the truth. If you believe and do not doubt, you can save this mountain to throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And so he encourages them to approach God and to approach prayer with that level of faith. If you believe and do not doubt, you can tell the mountain to throw itself into the sea, and it will do that. And God will answer the prayers of those who believe in their hearts and, and do not doubt. And so, you know, there is a kind of faith that we need to get to God. There's a kind of faith that we need that takes that initial step and, oh, you know, that, that receptivity to the Lord and say, God, I believe. And um, that's the, 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 the prayer of faith that enters a person into the life of salvation. And I think that there's another, a, a whole other level of faith or a degree of faith, which is not just the faith that got you to God, but that faith that develops from walking faithfully with the Lord, the kind of faith that Jesus demonstrates, which is the kind of faith that has such incredible confidence that when you ask God in, pray, in faith, you pray, uh, you have that, that surety, that knowledge in your heart that God will do the thing that you're asking for. And, and prayer, and that is a kind of faith that only b develops, I believe, as you seek God regularly and as you walk with God. And it is a faith that you can't conjure up on your own. You can't make this faith up. You can't come up with it on your own. It is a faith that God nurtures in you, and he cultivates it, and he grows it. And so that's why this is a faith that I believe um, stems from alignment with God. So, so that when you're praying for something, God, you, you already know God's heart so well, and you know God's will because you've been seeking God, you've been walking with God, and there's that boldness, that courage that develops as a result of walking with God. And I believe that that's why Jesus can say, make such a radical statement that whatever you ask for in prayer, if you believe and don't doubt, you will receive it. Because the only prayers that God could possibly always say yes to are the prayers that are following his will and doing the things that God wants to do. And how do we learn what God's will is? How do we even determine, you know, his, his will in specific situations unless we're seeking God, unless we're in the word, uh, coming to know his heart, coming to know his character. But then there's a boldness that develops within you, which gives you a kind of courage that as you're living your life and you're facing challenges, then you can go to God and, and have that same boldness. And I've been challenged recently a couple times, um, and, uh, and then we're going to get to Psalm 32 here, but a couple times recently where I've been challenged to step out in greater faith and boldness. One time recently, a couple weeks ago, I was having a massive fight with my wife, and I was 
really angry at her and she was re- really angry at me and it you know it was one of those fights that like lasts uh, a day or two and um so it was like the second day and i i told my my friend about it and my friend was like let me pray for you so he laid hands on me in the street <laughs> it was on a street corner we were waiting uh, waiting for the uh, school bus uh, with our kids and uh, he prayed for God's, uh, you know, God's will to be done in my marriage and for God to help uh, reconcile my wife and I. And then he patted me on the back. He's like, you're going to be fine. God's going to answer that prayer. You, your marriage is going to be great. It's going to be fine. And then I, I scoffed at him. I, I, I scoffed over my shoulder. I'm like, yeah, I hope so. But uh, really, when I said that, I, was immediately, I immediately recognized that there was a cynicism in my heart, and I wasn't really believing what he was saying. I was still very skeptical. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a drag. God, yeah, okay, thanks for praying, but like, is God really going to do anything about this? But then I was convicted, and I realized, you know, it's almost like God was saying to me, oh, ye of little faith. You know, because how foolish would it have been for me to um, approach my wife with that uh, with that mentality that God really wasn't going to do anything. You know, that cynicism and that skepticism. And so I realized that, that at that moment that if my friend, if I was going to let my friend pray for me and if he was going to encourage me in that way, then the only Christian thing to do, the only responsible thing to do would be to go home and actually believe in faith that God was going to reconcile the relationship. Because if I brought that negativity back home with me, then probably nothing would happen. But for me to, to step into the answer of that prayer, I have to believe that it's actually going to happen. So I was convicted. And so, and so I, 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 I was still walking home. I had like another avenue block. So, you know, avenue blocks are longer than street blocks. So I had like a few minutes to get from avenue 2nd Ave to 1st Ave. And so I, 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 I made a conscious effort to change my attitude and to believe, okay, God's, gonna, God's got this. He's going to rescue me. He's going to rescue the relationship. And when I, op- when I got to my apartment, the door was locked, so I had, to, I had to ring the doorbell. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, be positive here, be faithful. So when my wife opened the door, I looked her in the eye because the, ma- the part of me that was still very angry didn't even want to make eye contact with her. That's, that's how mad I was at her. But I, I looked her in the eye, and then we, like, had, like, a momentary, like, she looked me in my eye, and then it, soft- it softened. It almost immediately softened. And then later that day, she emailed me, and she's like, hey, listen, like, I, I'm sorry for what I did, and she kind of owned her part. And then later that day, we were able to reconcile, and now two weeks later, it's like totally in the past. But see, I realized if I didn't, you see, I had to step out in faith. If God, if God was going to answer this prayer of faith, I had to step out in faith. I had to believe God was actually going to do the thing that we were asking for, because otherwise, I would just go home and it would continue. Similar situation recently, I, I, I've taken on this project with... Um, it's called the Nehemiah Project. It's a, it's a church planting and church renewal uh, thing that I'm doing with the denomination, with the churches in our region. There's about 41 ministries. And one of the things that I have to do for this is I have to raise $40,000 by June, and then I have to raise another $80,000 the following year. I hate raising money. I hate it. I hate asking for money. I hate hitting up my friends, hitting up my parents. I don't like doing it. And so I, I've been putting it off. I've been putting it off since... Um, Basically, since October, I just, I, I can't, it's like a spiritual block. I don't know what's happening, but I just can't, I couldn't do it. But meanwhile, I've been, we've been praying for the Nehemiah Project. Maybe you have even heard about it. Uh, people in the denomination have been praying for it. My church is praying for it. And every, in every way that we're, we're approaching God on this topic, we do believe God is, in fact, 
going to bless the Nehemiah Project, and we're going to plant churches, and we're going to renew churches, and we're going to raise money. And so I, I was praying about it, and I sensed God saying, you, you need to believe that I can take care of this, that, that if you set out to raise money, the, the money's going to show up. Stop being such a naysayer. Stop being so negative. Believe in faith that I can do this. And so I prayed, okay, God, provide the money. And I, and I sensed God say, yes, I will provide the money. <laughs> but you got to get out there and ask. It's not just going to show up. You have to do your part. You have, to, you have to step out in faith and actually send some emails, make some phone calls, sit down with some people. You have to live your faith out. So just this past Monday, I, I, for me, this was a big spiritual hurdle of faith. I, I had some time on Monday, and so I, I forced myself to send some emails and praise God, I emailed four people. Three of them have already responded. And I have a couple meetings set up, and I'm so, so the ball is rolling. But you see, it, it wasn't just enough to, to have that faith abstractly. The, the boldness and the confidence, I think, was reflected in the fact that I was actually willing to get, sit down on my computer and send a couple of emails out. Right? I have an Orthodox Jewish friend, and he says the funniest thing. He says, yeah, faith moves, moves mountains. So pick up your shovel and get digging. And I think there's a lot of truth there because faith is not just something that is abstract, but real faith, that boldness of faith, the kind of faith Jesus is talking about that you can move a mountain, tell it to throw into the sea, is action. It's action. It's not just up here, but it's a willingness to look my wife in the eye. It's a willingness to send out the emails. It's a willingness to take a step in the direction that you feel God is leading you to go. You can't just sit back. You can't just sit on the sidelines and wait. That's not what faith is. Faith is movement. It's taking a step in the direction that you believe God is calling you. That's what shows what you really believe. And that kind of faith is what I believe enables us to experience and internalize the forgiveness that God wants us to experience through Jesus Christ, which is what today is all about. Psalm chapter 32. So let me read Psalm 32 to you as well. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place, and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you, this is the Lord speaking now, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. O Lord God, we pray, I pray today that if there are any here who are struggling under the weight of sin, that today would be the day that they step into the freedom of Jesus Christ, 
that they know in their hearts, Lord, that you have covered over their sin, that they are washed clean, and that through your love, they are discovering who they are, who you've made them to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about forgiveness of sins today. We're talking about uh, sins and transgressions. And um, it seems to me to be the case that a lot of people don't really have um, any concept of sin these days. I mean, if you grew up in the church or if you grew up Catholic, then sure, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas about sin and you know you're a sinner. But the typical person that you probably meet in uh, the workplace um, that doesn't have a lot of experience in church really doesn't know uh, that much about sin. They're not aware necessarily that, that they're a sinner or that they're in need of, uh, of redemption or, or saving from sins. And uh, I don't know, maybe there are some of you here today who you kind of, can kind of resonate with that. This whole idea and concept of sin uh, doesn't really make a lot, of sin, uh, a lot of sense. So when David is talking about the blessing of someone who experiences redemption and, and uh, the forgiveness of his transgressions, what in the world is he talking about? Well, just real briefly, you know, sin is, is both a condition and it's an action. But the original sin, uh, maybe... You know, if you're taking notes, write down this expression, culpable shalom breaking. Culpable shalom breaking. So the idea of sin is that, you know, when God made the world, he made the world in a a state of perfect peace and flourishing. And everything uh, was in its right place and everything um, uh, acted the way that God intended for it to act, especially human beings, which are the, the pinnacle of creation. And, and sin is basically taking what, what is perfect, perfectly arranged in this perfect flourishing, and then putting an, a, a wrench in it and, and causing discord and disharmony within this perfect world that God has made. So that's sin, right? Breaking God's commands. Uh, but then the result of sin is more sin because another way to think about sin is less so as an action and more so as a kind of fallen condition whereby things do not work the way that they were intended to work. And I think that a great example of this um, is, in the, is in the way that sex is used in our day and age, right? Sex, the way it was created, if we think back to Adam and Eve in the garden and this idyllic, uh, this idyllic creation in which everything is working the way it's supposed to, uh, sex is a beautiful way of, of cementing a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, it is an expression of love and an expression of intimacy, a, a, a way of showing deep caring. It's also highly pleasurable and uh, and useful for, of course, making babies, which if you're in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and there are not that many people around in the world, then you need to have more babies, right? But we think about the way uh, sex is used today, uh, and you can see that there's both that the brokenness of sex, in, in other words, it doesn't even seem to function the way uh, it, it originally was meant to, to, to function, but it's also not used in a lot of cases for the for the ways that God intended. And oftentimes, uh, sex can be, um, it, it can be highly um, one-sided. It can be a way of domineering or controlling another person. Uh, sex is used to, to subjugate people. Uh, sex is used outside of the context of marriage in ways where the very meaning of sex is not honored. It's not used to cement a permanent loving relationship between persons. Sex is sold. Sex is trafficked. Sex is cheapened through pornography. And so, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Where, but the, the, the point there, I'm just using this as an example of what sin does. And, and it, it warps the way that um, something that was beautiful was meant to, meant to be uh, 
meant to be used. And we can see that, of course, in, in human beings as well. And perhaps we as human beings um, bear the brunt of it when it comes to the effects of sin. Um, sin is culpable shalom breaking. It's taking something beautiful and destroying it. One time um, when I was a kid, I'll never forget this. It was maybe in first grade, second grade. We took a little miniature field trip. where We walked down the street from my school. Uh, some of you know that I grew up in Japan. Um, it's one of the unique things about me. I'm an egg. I'm white on the outside and yellow, <laughs> yellow on the inside. For those of you that didn't know. Uh, but it, so this was in Japan. We walked down the street, and um, we crossed a little bridge, and there were some ducks that were hanging out underneath the bridge. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, one of my friends, uh, he thinks he's being all cool. He goes, he's like, hey, guys, watch this. And he goes, and he picks up this large kind of rock that was at the side of the road, and he goes over to the edge of the, uh, the, edge of the, um, of the bridge and looks down at the duck, and then it's like, I just dropped it on the duck and killed the duck right in front of us. Just, you know, wanton destruction for, like, no purpose. No purpose at all. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's sin. That's sin. You know, what we heard about in New Zealand recently, it, it's sin. It serves no purpose. It's just destruction. You know, and the crazy thing about it is that we're all, in a sense, guilty of these things. You know? We're guilty of these things. In fact, Oxford recently... Um, discovered, they did research over in over 500 cultures, uh, and they, they wrote a report in which they determined that almost universally that cultures around the world share um, certain ethics, certain concepts of morality, right and wrong. Help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, and respect others' property. But the crazy thing is that even though we share this, and Christians will call this the moral order, and we believe, according to Scripture, that these concepts of right and wrong are written on the human heart, which is why we all kind of share. But even if you don't believe that, um, the fact is that we all have rules and break them. We break our own rules. Uh, everybody that has a rule is guilty of breaking it. We're all hypocritical uh, to some extent. I love my wife. You know, and I want my wife to be treated, to treat me in certain ways, and I'm guilty of not treating her in the ways that I, w that I would like to be treated. You know, I have, t I have three kids. Um, they're ages 7, 5, and a lot of you have kids too. And it's funny because one of the things that kids love to do is to create black and white categories for everybody. So my kids, uh, they somehow figured out there are two types of people in the world, good guys and bad guys. And they always are trying to figure out who the good guys and who the bad guys are. Um, and I don't, I don't know why they're so preoccupied with that, but maybe it gives them a feeling of safety. So, for example, robbers are bad guys. Uh, Santa Claus is a good guy. Teachers at school are good guys. People on the street, well, they could be good guys or bad guys, so you just don't talk to them, right, because you don't know. One time we were uh, driving in, in Pennsylvania, and we saw a prison off to the left, and I was driving by, and I'm like, hey, guys, it's a prison. What's a prison, Daddy? Like, oh, there's people that are locked away uh, in that prison. My wife's like, Ben, shut up. Why are they too young for this? Why are you talking to them about this? And uh, so, so then Eli's like, so those are all the bad guys, right, Daddy? I'm like, uh, well, I mean, I guess, yes, yeah, some of them are, I didn't really know what to say, because is it really that simple? Like, okay, so everybody in prison is a bad guy, and if you're not in prison, then those are all the good guys? I mean, we all know, like, obviously life is not, it's not that clear cut. It's not that black and white. And um, so the problem here, as, you know, as we're just talking about sin, we're, 
we have to come to, to face the reality that, that we all have this thing called sin. It affects everybody. Solzhenitsyn, uh, he, he's famous for having said, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people and some were insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of human, every human being. So we all have a sin problem. And the, I realize we're, um, it's getting to be close to 1130 here already, but the reality of this is that because we have a sin problem, we are all, in a sense, alienated from God. We all carry a certain amount of shame and a certain amount of guilt uh, in our lives, which prevents us not only from having intimacy with the Father, but I believe it prevents us even from knowing who we really are, from understanding our true identity as the children of God. And we all know resentment, guilt, shame, these kind of things can wreak havoc on a person. And so what do we do about that? And so this is a very simple good news message. And Psalm 32 is about the forgiveness of sins, the blessing of forgiveness of sins. And when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, there's two incredible things that we learn from Psalm 32. And the first one is, let me read, uh, reread for you verses uh, 1 and 2 and then verse 5. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So the incredible thing that we learn about this thing called forgiveness that is held out to us in the gospel, and we read about it in Psalm, we read about it more uh, in the New Testament, is that the forgiveness that God offers us to cleanse us and to free us from the sin comes to us at no cost to us. It is completely, completely free. God gives us his forgiveness without us having to do anything to pay or earn forgiveness. It is free for us. This is an astonishing reality. This is insane. This is really, really good news because the thing is that in our culture and in our society as human beings, we are very, very hesitant ever to give forgiveness for free. In fact, the way the world works is that forgiveness must be paid for or it must be earned. So the forgiveness of God, and this is one of the reasons why the gospel is so, such good news and it blows our mind compared to anything that we experience in, in terms of human relationships in our human life is because it comes to us for free at no cost to us. The typical human thing to do is to demand some sort of payment. So one of the things that we do in relationships, we have a tendency to do this, is we will try to extract payment from people that we forgive. And we have various ways of doing this, but one of the ways that we do this would be to hold a grudge. And really, holding a grudge is simply not letting the person off the hook. And that's one of the reasons that forgiveness, sometimes the idea of forgiveness offends us because it seems too easy. And if someone has wronged you and they've hurt your feelings or they've done something to offend you, it makes us feel kind of good, in a sense, to kind of hold them at bay, hold them at a distance, or to be outwardly cold to them, you know, to treat them contemptuously. And that is a way of 
getting our payment back, of getting even in a sense. The idea that we could just let somebody completely off the hook is very foreign, and yet that is exactly what God does for us. Now, it might seem crazy. How is it possible that forgiveness can be free? And actually, it's not free, but it's free for us. It's free for us. And what that means then, this is the, the craziness of the gospel, and this is why the cross is so central in Christianity. Forgiveness is actually not free, but it is free for us because God pays the cost himself. And that is what the gospel is all about, is about God saying, you know what? I'm going to give you this forgiveness. This is going to be a restorative, freeing forgiveness. I'm going to free you from all guilt and shame. You're not going to have to, have to do anything to earn it because I am completely going to do all the work of covering over for your sin. Instead of making you pay for it, I'm going to pay for it myself. And that's the message of the cross. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. That is God paying for our sins so that he can forgive us free of charge without making us pay anything or having to do anything to earn it back. And the New Testament consistently uh, has this message. Romans chapter 3, 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus is the payment for our sins. You know, think about it. Like, let's say you borrow my car, which I am totally cool with anybody borrowing my car because my car is a piece of garbage. However, let's say you had a nice car and you lend it out to a friend and your friend goes and nicks it up and it's going to cost maybe $500 to get the repairs done on it. Your friend says, I'm really, really, really sorry. And you say, you know what, I really want to forgive you. And I forgive you, but there's still this scratch on my car that needs to be paid for. Somebody has to pay for that. Somebody has to repair it. And so forgiveness, the way Jesus does it, he says, I forgive you, and then he pays the cost himself, rather than making you pay for it. That's what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is absorbing the cost, paying it on your own. It means that you do not make the other person feel guilty. You don't lay a guilt trip on them. You're not resentful to them. You're not distant and cold to them. You don't give them the silent treatment. It means you exonerate them. You let them off the hook. And there is pain there, but it's you saying, you know what, I'm going to take the pain on myself. I'm going to absorb it myself rather than making this other person feel bad. That's true forgiveness. That's what God does for us in Christ. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Just a little, a little kind of illustration of this. My older son, Eli, has a Rubik's Cube that he loves, and he keeps the Rubik's Cube made. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? All the colors are correct on each side. So Gus, his younger brother, was playing with the Rubik's Cube, and he got it messed up, and then he couldn't fix it on his own. He's five. So he comes to me. He's like, Dad, Dad. I'm like, yeah. He's like, can you fix the Rubik's Cube? Uh, so I tried. I fiddled with it for a little bit. And I was only making it worse. I'm like, Gus, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't fix it. Just, just bring it back to Eli, and he'll have his friend uh, fix it. Because Eli, he can't fix it on his own, but he has a, wh a friend who's a whiz at these things who can, like, in five minutes, can just ch -ch 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 fix the Rubik's Cube. But Gus was like, no, no, he's going to be mad at me. Don't, don't tell him. I felt bad for him. So I'm like, oh. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, Eli... Eli's like, yeah. I'm like, Eli, I was playing with your Rubik's Cube, and I messed it up, and I can't fix it. I'm really sorry. 
And uh, he's like, he's like, oh, okay, Dad, I'll have my friend fix it. I'm like, okay, thanks. And then I handed the Rub Rubik's cube back to Gus, because Gus got let off the hook. And so then I'm like, ah, teaching moment. I mean, I can relate this to uh, what Jesus does for us. I'm like, I'm like, Gus, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what I just did for you, that's what Jesus does for us. <laughs> Gus looked up at me. He's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he's five. He couldn't understand. But but do you see? I t I took the blame for him. I, I took the fall. And so that he could have his sins be covered over in the same way that David is saying in verse 1, that the, the sins are covered. They're, they're not, you can't see them anymore. They're not visible. They're dealt with. They're taken care of. I did that for Gus. That's what God does. That's what he does for us in Christ. And this has an incredible transforming effect in our life. This is the gospel message. This is how we, we, we come to salvation. This is how we become the people that God has meant for us to do because when we experience and know by faith that it is real and that it is true and that everything you've ever done that you're ashamed of everything you regret and every mistake you've ever made and every harmful or hurtful thing that you've ever said is completely just erased it's erased it's too good to be true. It's, it's really unbelievable. Because so much of our lives, I think, are, we're weighed down. Especially, you know, I'm 38. I, I don't know how old many of you are. Um, but it is easy, I think, kind of in your 30s, as you get to be wiser and older, you look back and you realize those things you did when you were a teenager, those things you did when you were in college, uh, were really, really stupid you know, really stupid. And maybe some of you can relate to that feeling of wishing you could go back. Old relationships that you had, you're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Or maybe it was something with your parents. Um, you know, we all sow, sowed our wild oats. Um, everybody in their, in their own way, I suppose. But here's the thing. God forgives it. He forgives it. All, all David does, he doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't have to beat himself before God. He doesn't have to sit in shame and sulk and, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. And he doesn't do any of that. What does it say? Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That, that's the prayer of confession, which I think is done in faith. There's no earning. It's not earning. It's not paying God back. It's not doing good works like religious people to try to make the good outweigh the bad. It's nothing like that. It's simply, Lord, this is what I did. I say it out loud. I confess it. And that is all it takes. And the slate is wiped clean. It really is. Which means that you can be completely f absolved of any guilt or shame that you carry. Any. Any. There's nothing that you could have ever done that God can't forgive. There's no mistake you've ever made. There's no wrong you've ever done. There's no transgression. There's no commandment you've ever broken. God can wipe it all clean. That is the blessedness of the person who, in faith, turns to Jesus and receives God's forgiveness. And it is life transform 
life transforming. And the reason is life transforming is because when you receive that forgiveness because of God's love, it uncovers who you really are. It gives you back your real identity, which is your identity as a child of God. Now, because the question is that people could say, well, if God really is, if he's really that generous, if you really forgive anything I ever do, ever did, ever will do, he forgives all sins, then what's to stop me from doing this thing? What's to stop me from doing what I want to do? If God will really forgive me. (laughs) The answer to that question is because you will be a changed person. Because you were living in a false identity, which was covered... You didn't know who you were. You couldn't even see who you were because your sin was like a wet blanket on top of you. It was a false identity. But the forgiveness tears that off, gives you new skin, and you see who you really are, made to be a son or daughter of God. And so you're not the same person. I I believe that there's fear of punishment, guilt, shame. These are not great motivators for change. Right? Just look at the, the recidivism rate in this country of people who go to jail and then they're released from jail. I think like three-quarters of them end up being arrested again. These people who did time, they spent years in prison, they just go right back. Right? Fear of punishment does not motivate us to be good people. It does not motivate us to follow God's commandments. Those things do not work. Shame, guilt, fear, they do not work. I might obey somebody because I fear them, but that's very different than if I, if I love this person and I just give myself to that person out of love. It's completely different. The only thing that will really motivate change in your life is for you to discover who you really are. Because adopting an identity, I, I believe that adopting identity is the most powerful thing that will motivate you to change who you are. If I look back on my life, when I got, became a husband, there was a change in my identity, a change in who I am. I'm not the same person. Some of you relate when you first had a kid. You had their first kid. You saw the baby come out. Maybe they cut it out. In my case, they cut out three of them. My wife is doing, she's okay. But that's, man, three C-sections, it's crazy. But that was a life-changing moment. I became a dad. Identity shifted. It's been seven years now. I'm still embracing, understanding this identity, being a dad. But the most powerful identity, the most motivating identity is discovering who God has made you to be, and that is a son or a daughter. You're all familiar with the uh, story of the prodigal son, right? The, the prodigal son goes off, he sows his wild oats, he makes lots of mistakes, he burns up all his dad's money, he comes back ashamed, he comes back a failure, he comes back and he says, I'm not worthy to be your son, just take me in as a hired hand. His identity has been completely clouded over. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. He, sure, he certainly doesn't believe that he has the right to call himself a son. Why? Because of all his guilt and all his shame. But the father, he experiences radical love and forgiveness from the father when the father welcomes him with open embrace. But what does the father do immediately? The father says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This dad is kind of materialistic. He's all about rings and robes and sandals and stuff like that, kind of like New Yorkers. But, um, but no, that's not what it is. It's not materialism. Right? What's the significance of the robe? What's the significance of the ring? And this whole huge household with all these servants, that is status as being a son, as being the father's son, especially the ring. The ring symbolizes that he has the authority as the heir of the father. Boom, he can sign things on behalf of the father. Why? Because he's the real son and he's been returned. The father is giving, the, giving him the robe, killing the fountain calf, giving him the sandals, 
because he has status that other people in that household do not have because he is a son of the father. And that is where the motivation to change and to live a new life is going to come from because he is realizing who he is. I'll close with this. Listen, if you are carrying shame and if you are carrying guilt and if you feel like you're not good enough for God or for other people, you're not good enough for your parents, and you're living under the weight of that, it is because either you don't know who you are or you've forgotten who you are. Because when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And faith in God opens up the reality of forgiveness. And forgiveness means the slate is washed clean. The sins are atoned for. They're covered. When God looks at you, he does not see those things. Why would you want to dwell even for a second on anything about you that God does not believe to be true of you, that God doesn't see? Why would you focus on your sin? God's not focusing on your sin. God's not focusing on the mistakes you made. He's not focusing on the things you're insecure about. He does not want you to carry those things. That is not the life that you were created for. You were created to be a son of God, to be a daughter of God, to know the unbounded love of a father who would give anything for you, loves the heck out of you, is completely happy and delighted in you. That is the gospel message, and it's true. It's not just some magic. It's not just a, 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 a perception. It is real. It's true. He really does. And so I believe that through faith, I was talking about faith earlier, we need to step into that. You need to step into it and believe, as hard as it is to believe, to believe actually that, your sin really is taken care of. It's gone. It's gone. It's been removed. And uh, you can enjoy being a son or a daughter with the robe, with the sandals, the whole nine yards. God gives it to you because of what Christ has done for you. If you're holding on to your sin, you're holding on to your shame, you're not letting yourself be forgiven, you are not letting Jesus do his job. That's the bottom line. So, Consider this today to be an invitation to maybe for some of you to, to receive it for the first time, but maybe for some of you to be reminded of who you are, who you really are, to get back to your identity, the one God created you to have as a son, as a daughter, and then to live in that, to live in that, to enjoy it. Don't be afraid to enjoy it. God has given it to you. He's worked very hard to make it possible for us to have that. And if we don't enjoy it, then uh, it's wasted. So believe. Believe your sins are taken care of. That is why David says, blessed are the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Let me pray 